That's that well-known book of James, chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 1 to 11. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat the, your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgent. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Patiently, waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of the Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. May the Lord have his blessing, the reading, and the understanding of this portion of Scripture even for our hearts this morning. So we're continuing here this morning in the book of James, and where last week I focused on verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5. I'm going to be continuing here with verses 7 to 11. And uh, this passage, verses 7 to 11, really forms, as we'll see, a mirror image to what we looked at last week. Whereas last week we talked about James's condemnation of the wicked rich. This morning we're going to see the comfort that he offers in the Lord to the righteous poor. And not just to the righteous poor who are suffering there in that period, but also to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So I pray that the Lord would work his comfort in our hearts this morning. That we would be able to rejoice in the midst of whatever circumstances that we're facing. Yesterday morning, uh, Jane was singing at a, uh, at a mother-daughter banquet, and, uh, and, the, and the, the theme they're talking about is joy. And I really think that, that our culture misunderstands and confuses happiness and joy. In fact, some Bible versions actually translate the two as though they are synonymous, but really they're not. Really they're not. If you're happy and you know what, clap your hands in the midst of a severe trial, people are going to think you're crazy. But joy is something far deeper than, than fleeting happiness. Joy is something that transcends your circumstances because it, it comes from the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. So whatever it is you're facing, you can know the joy of the Lord, whatever it is that you're facing. And for those who are, are truly born again, those who have been filled with God's Holy Spirit, they will know that joy. It might not always be there. It might not always be right there at the surface. But if the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, then it's there underneath and you will grow in that as you grow in sanctification, as the Lord changes you into the, into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been reminded over the past week of the brevity of life in a very powerful way. Not only did we have a memorial service here yesterday for Esther Hepner, Minnie Pohl's sister, but last night at about 11 o'clock, we got a call from the hospital that there was, was an individual who was in ICU and wanted a, a Baptist minister. 
And it was an individual that's not known to me or to this church, but I rushed down there only to find out that I didn't get there fast enough, that the person had passed away before I could arrive at the hospital. And I don't know what this person's state before the Lord was. The family had left by the time I got there, and, and so I was not able to, to, to ascertain whether this person truly was born again. But it really made me think of, of the number of people who think that they can wait till the end of their lives to do business with God. They put off till tomorrow thinking that they will get right with God somewhere down the track. Maybe you're a young person here this morning who thinks that you'll do it tomorrow. But there, you don't have any tomorrows promised. You don't know at what point the Lord is going to take you home. You don't know at what point the Lord is going to return. So now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to get right with the Lord. But even with that, that, that the thing that really hit me the most this week was something I never could have expected or anticipated. And, and to be honest, even as I stand here this morning, I'm still kind of reeling as I think about it. About six months ago, um, I got word that, that, that one of my housemates' wives had died. She was pregnant with their five-month-old baby. And I, I knew this couple quite well. I, mean, I, was, I was Phil's housemate, and, uh, and I was there. They were not yet married while I lived there. I was there through their courtship. And then about six months ago, it was last October, I got an email that, that, that she had passed away. And then this week I got an email from, from another friend, from a mutual friend, who said that, that Phil has actually been charged with first-degree murder in her death. This was a man I went to seminary with. This was a man that I, I shared a home with. And I just, as I said, I really don't know what to think. So how do you make sense of these things? How do you make sense of that? I think in the same way that James was calling his readers to make sense of their circumstances. He was calling his readers to make sense of their situation because of the Lord because the Lord was at hand, because the Lord's a righteous judge. That's the only way that we can make sense of suffering in this life, is to know that God really is in control, and that in Christ, He really does love us. So have you ever had a trial in your life, a significant trial? That maybe that maybe it was taking just seemed like it was never going to end. Now maybe it's not on par with with some of the circumstances that 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 I just shared with you. But don't don't make the mistake of thinking that just because your trial is not as as serious, so to speak, as, as that somebody else is facing, is that it's not a trial. Because if it's causing you pain, to whatever degree, it is a trial. It's a trial. Maybe you're in a, in a work situation where, where your boss or a, a co-worker is, is giving you a hard time, maybe even persecuting you for your faith. Or maybe it's at school and, and, and some of the other, other students in the school are mocking you or, or mocking what you believe. That might even be happening in a so-called Christian school. Or maybe you're in a difficult marital relationship and your husband or wife is, is really not treating you well and there really seems to be no growth. And you're wondering, is this ever going to end? Is this ever going to end? Maybe you have chronic health issues, or maybe you're facing a temptation to sin that is just going on and on and on, and you don't seem to be getting any relief. 
Or maybe it's, it's simply a desire that has gone unfulfilled. I know for, for many years, um, for me, the, the desire to get married was, was a strong desire in my life. And I was, was almost um, embarrassed, I guess, to call it a trial because I thought about the things that other people were facing. And mine just seemed pale to pale in comparison to that. But it was a trial. And I felt a real freedom when I was talking with one of the, the discipleship counseling pastors at my previous church. And he said, no, that's a trial. Just, just as much as it is a trial for, for a couple who are unable to conceive. It's a trial. But I want to ask this morning, where does your hope lie? Where does your hope lie in the midst of that trial? Whatever it is. If your hope lies in, in the desire that it is, this trial is going to end in this life, you may be sorely disappointed. The trial that you are facing may never end in this life. James is calling us this morning not to have hope in something. He is calling us to have our hope in someone. Our hope is a someone. He comes back to it again and again in this passage. Look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And again in verse 8, the Lord is at hand. And then in verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. That's our hope. He's our hope. He's our hope. And the trials that we face in this life may, as I said, never end. And you will not know freedom from that until the Lord returns or takes you home. So is your hope this morning in Jesus Christ? Or is your hope this morning in your earthly circumstances? Because if you are in Jesus Christ, then that hope will transcend whatever circumstance it is you're facing. Because you have a hope that is based on God himself. James says that, that God is the Father of lights with whom is no variation or shadow due to change. He is the one who gives us every good and every perfect gift. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. If your hope is in anything in this life, even in anything good in this life, you will be disappointed. Because none of that can compare to the hope that we can have in Jesus Christ and, and him alone. So maybe your, your, your hope is that your boss will come to his senses and realize what a good employee you are. Or maybe your hope is that the, the school bully will, will come to salvation. Or maybe your hope is that, that your wife or husband will repent of the way they've been treating you. But none of those things are promises. We have no guarantees that any of those things are ever going to happen. You may never be free from your chronic health issue. You may, in this life, you may never be free in this life from the temptation that's plaguing you. You may never get married. So we have to hope in someone more sure. We have to hope in Christ and him alone. So as I said at the outset, verses 7 to 11 form a mirror image of verses 1 to 6. So as discouraging as verses 1 to 6 would have been for the wicked rich, 
Verses 7 to 11 would have been encouraging to the righteous poor. So James's encouragement to the righteous poor in verses 7 to 11 are the logical consequence of the condemnation that he leveled on the wealthy on the on the wicked rich in verses 1 to 6. While the wicked rich will be condemned, the righteous poor will be vindicated. The poor can find their confidence in the fact that the Lord is a righteous judge and he will right all the wrongs that have been inflicted against them. And the basis for that is, as we see in verse 7, the Lord is coming soon. The Lord is coming soon. So as you saw there, three times, James talks about the coming of the Lord. He's saying that the coming of the Lord is imminent, that his return could happen at any moment. And this was taught throughout the New Testament. Peter said it, or Paul said it rather in, in Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. And John said in 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. So what's going on here? Did, did James and Peter and Paul get it wrong? Jesus said in Matthew 25, 13, that we are to watch therefore, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And he said in 24, 13, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So if while Christ was in, in his incarnate flesh on the earth, he did not have that knowledge, surely no other human being would have a direct knowledge of when Christ was going to return. Now, I read just yesterday that there's, there's yet another cult leader who has predicted yet another proposed date for the return of Christ, or, or for the, the, actually, he says he is the Christ, so I guess he says he's already here, but, but for Armageddon, for, for a time when, when he says that, that he and his followers will have dominion on the earth. Now, I don't even want to give him airtime by saying his name, but but he's predicting Armageddon for, for June 30th, or for those across the national international dateline, July 1st of this year. So happy Canada Day, everybody. Or maybe I should say happy Dominion Day. Uh, maybe you remember that there was a, a cult leader last year who predicted that the world was going to end on May 21st. But when May 21st happened, without any significant events, this man retired from the ministry, and um, we really don't hear about him anymore. Good, yes. The, the Jehovah Witnesses, or more accurately, the Watchtower cult, have predicted that the world would end no less than eight times. But each time that happens, they have to revise and give, give some sort of excuse as to why it didn't happen. And you're, you're going to hear a lot of hype as the year progresses because apparently the Mayan calendar predicts that the world is going to end on December 21st of this year. Now, of course, these groups are all horribly, horribly deceived. But you know what? I think they actually have one up on a lot of Christians. And you might be wondering, well, okay, John's finally lost it for sure this time. But think about it for a minute. These cults are focused on the end of all things. Their focus is not on this life. Their focus is on the next now, again, they're horribly deceived as to, to what eternal life is and what it means and even where they're going to spend it. Because unless they repent, their eternal life will be in hell. But I think we can learn something here. Because so many in Western Christianity are focused on this life 
as though this is all there is. Now, our brothers and sisters throughout the history of the church and around the world who have faced persecution have been just that much less focused on the things of this life. Because for them, this life is hard. For them, this life is painful. As as they themselves are being abused because of the name of Christ. And that was the, the circumstance that these Christians here were facing, these, this dispersion that the 12 tribes of the true Christians who were scattered, those to whom James was addressing this letter, they were being persecuted because of their faith. So, so Peter and, and James and, and John and Jesus We're doing us a real service by telling us to live our lives as though the coming of Christ could be at any second. Because it really could be. It really could be whether it is through the Lord calling you home or his return. We are living in the last days. This was inaugurated with the coming of Christ. 1 Peter 1.20 says that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. These are the last days. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. He also refers to this as the end of the ages in Hebrews 9.26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. So brothers and sisters, The coming of the Lord is at hand. The judge is standing at the door. So we should live in eager anticipation of his return. Now we we see here that James uses the analogy of the patient farmer. At the the time of the the first rains, the farmer would, would plant his crops in the Middle East. And that would usually happen in the fall. And then in the spring, that had the, the latter rains. And that was when, when he would, would, the, the crops would yield their fruit and, and he would, would, would take from the crops his sustenance. He would take from the crops what he needed in order to live. Paul uses the farmer as a metaphor also in 1 Timothy 2.6, is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So the the farmer here is a picture of patience. As wound up as the farmer gets about it, he can't make those crops come any quicker. Those crops are going to come at the time that the Lord has appointed. And so he he is patient about it. Because year in, year out, the crops come at the appointed time. Or in some cases, the crops don't come. And that's when you'll see really where the farmer has his hope set. Is his hope set on the crops themselves or is his hope set on the Lord who gives food to his children? Now in this, in this focus though on the end of all things, I, I really have, have a caution that I, that I want to, to lay down for us. It can be so easy to focus on the Lord's return and let it be about the what rather than the who. So often we focus on the return of the Lord not because we are going to be ushered into his presence for all eternity, but because we want a measure of relief from the problems of this life. And I believe that that when we do this, we are actually failing to, failing to understand who God really is as our treasure. And again, it's only just a fraction better than the people who are focusing on the things of this life. So by God's grace, we need to focus on who he is, on, on the, the joys that we will have in him. Let me ask you this, if, if, would heaven still be heaven to you 
if Christ were not there? Would heaven still be heaven to you if Christ were not there? Are you thinking about the streets of gold and forgetting where those streets lead? They lead to the throne of God. And the, the greatest joy of heaven is beholding Christ, of being known, of, of knowing him even as he knows us. And knowing that as amazing as all those blessings are going to be, that they will never end. That at the end of the first million years of beholding the face of Christ, you haven't even scratched the surface. Because it's going to go on forever and ever and ever. And you are going to grow in the knowledge of Christ until until eternity. That's the hope that we have. He is the hope that we have. And he is standing at the door. He, Jesus Christ, is standing at the door. He is the righteous judge of verse 9. So we could be patient because the Lord is a righteous judge. Remember in verses 1 to 6 that these very people were being treated shamefully, shamefully at the hands of the wicked rich. They were being defrauded of their rightful wages. They were being condemned and murdered. In chapter 2, verse 6, we see that they were being oppressed and dragged into court by these same people. So they're the same legal system that should have been protecting these righteous poor was actually being used to add to their oppression. But James is saying here that the tables are about to be turned that the situation is about to be righted. The scales of justice are about to come into their proper balance. The judge is here. Now, the image of the judge at the door has a sense of, of both imminence and expectancy. He is right there. He's not only coming in that sense, he's actually, actually already there. We're told in Revelation 3.20 that Jesus is standing and knocking at the door. Now, this passage is often used in evangelistic efforts to describe Jesus as standing there knocking at the door of your heart, asking you to let him in. And they say it's as, it's as, if, it's as if Jesus is saying there, please, won't you let me in? Now, to use this passage of Scripture in this way fails not only to take the context into consideration, but in so doing, it also fails to accurately portray the character of the one who is at the door. This part of the letter is actually written to the church of Laodicea, who were lukewarm in their relationship with Jesus. And as G.K. Beale points out, this is an invitation not for the readers to be converted, but to renew themselves in a relationship with Christ that has already begun. As is apparent in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And this, this call to a, to a renewed relationship very likely is, is, is quoted from the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. We read, my beloved is knocking, open to me, my sister, my love. So it's, it's a call to a renewed relationship between a husband and a wife. So, so Christ is calling us, not here as, as a homeless transient seeking shelter, but as the master of the house expecting alert servants to respond immediately to his single signal and welcome his entrance. That's from the ESV study Bible. So the master of the house 
is demanding entry into the house. The judge is at the door. So what I wonder, would the judge have heard there on the other side of that door? Maybe you've been in a situation where your older brother or sister was was picking on you and and maybe even had their their fist cocked and they're about to, to punch you when, unbeknownst to him, your father appeared at the doorway. Or maybe think about the, the pioneers on a wagon train surrounded by hostile Apaches. And the Apaches are, are circling and whooping, and they're about to, to, to let loose a volley of arrows on the helpless wagon train when there's a sudden bugle call as, as the cavalry bugles the charge. Or maybe like a, a condemned prisoner on death row where their hands and legs have already been shackled and the electrodes have already been, been placed on their, on their scalp and on their, on their ankle. And the executioner's hand is there on the switch that's about to, to, to send 2,450 volts through their body. When all of a sudden there is a call from the governor saying that DNA evidence has been produced to prove your innocence. That's what it would have been like for these Christians to hear these words, to know that the judge is at the door, that every right, every wrong was about to be righted by God himself. But beloved, there's a warning here as well. There's a warning here as well. Because as we see, the wicked rich were still listening to this passage. They didn't stop listening, hopefully, at the end of verse 6. They were still there hearing this same message. So James is saying to this, this to them as well. So what was comfort for the oppressed would also bring distress to the oppressor. Maybe you've been an oppressor at some point. Maybe you've been the older brother. How did you feel when your father arrived on the scene? Maybe you've been the hostile Apache hungry for a scalp. How did you feel when you heard that bugle? Maybe you've been the guilty murderer, secretly gloating that somebody else was going to die for your crime. How did you feel when that DNA, that DNA evidence implicated you instead? That's how the rich would have felt. They weren't the only ones susceptible to feeling the heat of the judge standing at the door. There was a message here for both parties. But there's also even a warning for this in the righteous poor. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. There in verse 9. The natural response to being treated poorly is to strike back. The natural response is to, to want to get revenge. But now without, without means at their disposal, very likely the righteous poor would have found it difficult if not impossible, to take vengeance, to actually get revenge. Because remember, the, the, the court systems were, were not there for them. They were, they were supporting the rich. But while they couldn't maybe physically get revenge, they could use their mouths. They could use their mouths. They could complain about the people who were wronging them. They could act themselves as judges by condemning the people who were oppressing them. They could condemn them with their words. And, you know, from a, from a fleshly perspective, they would have been justified. Because we see here in this passage that they really were being treated shamefully. But how often do we, when somebody wrongs us, take matters into our own hands 
by complaining about the other person to anybody who will listen. And there's a danger there when we do that of us being judged ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. Hebrews 10.30 says, rather, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, and the judge will judge his people. Romans 12.19 says it too, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we entrust ourselves through our trials to the righteous judge to know that he really is there at the door. But in Romans 12, Paul actually goes on to encourage the righteous poor, or the righteous behavior, that stands in in contrast to sinful vengeance. He says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we focus, instead of of trying not to do the wrong thing, we focus instead on trying to do the right thing. Overcoming evil with good. But we really can't do that, can we? I know I've talked about this before, but I am very sensitive to perceived injustice, especially when it's inflicted against me. And in my flesh, I want to react. I want to, I want to respond in kind to what has been, been, doing, been done to me instead of responding in kindness. And if, if I try to screw up my courage and my strength and try to make myself do it, I will fail every single time. But you know what? Even, even if I manage to say something nice or do something nice, the hypocrisy of that will, will completely undermine any value that is in that action. And that just demonstrates my dependence on a holy God, on his sovereign power at work in me. And I know I'm not the only one in this room who needs his help in doing this. We all do. We all do. Left to our own devices, we will fail every single time. But brothers and sisters, we have an example in this. We have an example in this in Jesus Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2.23 So James is not saying here that we don't complain at all. He's saying take our, our complaint to the person who can really do something about it. He's saying, take our complaint to the Most High God. Sit down and read the Psalms and see the number of times that that particularly David is being abused and goes to God to vindicate him. Take those Psalms and make them your prayer. Make them your prayer. God will ultimately vindicate you, fellow Christian. He will ultimately bless you. Jesus comforted the disciples with these words. In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, of course, we're living in the the tension between the already and not yet. Jesus already has overcome the world. He already has done that. That's been inaugurated with his first coming. But it won't be fully completed until he returns. Until he comes back to claim his own. To claim us. So Christ is our ultimate example. 
but he's also our ultimate strength as he flows in us and helps us to obey him as we cast ourselves on him, confessing our failing, confessing our weakness, and asking his strength to flow in us for his glory. We also see here in verse 10 that the Lord blesses the steadfast so we can set our hope in that. We can set our hope in the Lord who blesses us through our trials. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So we can think here of Daniel thrown into the lion's den for for praying to the Lord. Or we can think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace for for refusing to to bow to the image. We can think of Elijah hunted by Jezebel. But perhaps there's no clearer example of, of suffering in the midst of a trial as a prophet than that of Jeremiah. The Lord said to him in Jeremiah 1.19, They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. So when Jeremiah faithfully proclaimed the message of the Lord, he was beaten and thrown into prison. He was delivered, but only to be thrown into a muddy well. He was delivered only to be put into custody of Gedaliah, who was murdered. He was delivered only to be exiled in Egypt, where eventually he died. Does that sound like deliverance to you? From a fleshly perspective, not at all. Again, if you are hoping for deliverance in this life, you will be disappointed. We have to train ourselves to think about things from a spiritual perspective. From a spiritual perspective. Now the question that was on the, would be on the lips of most people in the midst of their suffering is why? Why? And Job was no exception. James uses him, him as an example in James 5.11. He says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now, I hope that the the story is familiar to you. The Lord had given Satan a limited freedom to attack Job. So first, a group of Sabaeans came and killed his servants. And while that news was being delivered, another servant came and, and told him that fire from God had come down and consumed his sheep and his shepherds. And then another servant came and told him that Chaldeans had stolen his camels and killed yet more servants. And while that was happening, another servant came and told him that a wind had come and destroyed the home in which all of his children were feasting and that they were all killed. So what was Job's response? After hearing this last piece of news, He he arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He fell on the ground and worshipped. And then God gave Satan rain to attack Job's health and he was covered from head to toe in loathsome sores. And his wife came to him and said, Why do you hold fast in your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job didn't submit to that temptation. He said to his wife, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Beloved, Job was steadfast. He did not sin in response to his circumstances that were far more horrific than almost anyone on the planet has ever suffered. But then, later on in the book of Job, as his his so-called friends come and offer so-called comfort, saying that the reason why he was experiencing this suffering was because of his sin, he did begin to question God, not so much to the, to the point of being sinful, I believe, but, but just saying, why God? I don't understand. Why God? 
And then God appeared to him and told him, you don't need to know why. You don't need to know why. You simply need to know who I am. And after God declared his glory to Job, Job's response was he placed his hand over his mouth. He placed his hand over his mouth. But all of these people, the prophets and Job and the cloud of witnesses from Hebrews chapter 11, all of them are examples of suffering patiently. Suffering patiently. But all of them point to Jesus Christ. They all reflect his suffering and his patience. He is our ultimate example. So are you like that cloud of witnesses seeking a better country? Are you seeking a kingdom where God rules? If you are, then lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is heated, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's our hope. He's our strength. And in all of this, we see that the Lord has a purpose in our suffering. The Lord has a purpose in our suffering. Verse 11, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when the Lord passed before Moses, he declared his name to Moses, saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses responded the only way that he could. The only way that he could, the only way that he could respond to the glory of the Lord was to bow his head to the earth and worship. To bow his head to the Lord and worship. So we here who are born again, we here know personally the Lord's mercy, the Lord's grace, the Lord's steadfast love, the Lord's faithfulness. And so we too can bow to the earth and worship. Beloved, when you're doing that, when you're worshiping the holy God of the universe, the problems of this life cease to have any ability to consume you. The problems still may be there. But when your eyes are off your circumstances and on a holy God, you can't help but worship. And God has a purpose for us in our trials, just as he did for those Christians in James's letter. And that's true even of our death. Psalm 116, 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The very hairs of your head are numbered just as your days are numbered. 
You can't do anything to add or to take away from your days on this earth. Beloved, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8, 28 to 30 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he glorified. So foreknown saint, predestined saint, called saint, justified saint, glorified saint. God has a purpose for you in your suffering. And that purpose is to make you more like Jesus. So as you look at him, as you strive in the strength that God provides to look at him, no matter what you're facing, you will grow to be more like Jesus. Because that's a promise. That's a promise. All of those things in in 29 and 30 are in the perfect tense. They've already been accomplished. From God's perspective, you have already been glorified in Christ. It's a done deal. So fellow heir of Christ, the sovereign of the universe is on his throne. He is in control of your circumstances. No circumstance is too big or too small to escape his rule. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for your sins. So submit yourself to him and wait patiently for him to achieve his purposes in you. His will will be done. Let's pray.